<laughs> hello, 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 beautiful people. Welcome back to another episode of Best Concordia. I'm your host, Johnny B, and with me as always is my fabulous co-host, Anne-Marie Turcotte. Hey, Anne-Marie, how's it going? Good. Good. And that mysterious track you just heard is called Ishon by this week's musical guest, Shannon Floyd. And we are coming to you live from the Ethnography Lab here at Concordia University in Montreal. And this week, we will be delving into the world of secrecy and revelation with returning guest, MA Sociology graduate, yes, I said graduate, Luchin Ivanov, who is back to tell us all about his completed master's research on the secret files of the Romanian secret police under the former communist regime. But first, Anne-Marie and I had the opportunity to sit down with a visiting scholar, Alex Johnson, a PhD candidate in anthropology from UC Santa Cruz, who spoke to us about data centers and surveillance in Iceland, and her thoughts on how secrecy and revelation are absorbed into the everyday. Now, Alex is also a fabulous writer and has written several insightful and powerful articles about her experiences with sexual assault in the field and how this is dealt with in academia. So, we just wanted to give folks a heads up that we'll be talking about this in the third segment of today's interview with Alex. But first up, Alex talked us through her fascinating ethnographic work in Iceland. Um, so what are you doing your PhD in at Santa Cruz? Sure. Um, anthropology, cultural anthropology. Mm -hmm. And what I'm looking at has been the development of data storage centers, specifically in Iceland, but trying to think about this kind of new globalized geography of data mm -hmm. and how it's impacting people in different ways. So uh, you've been doing work in Iceland? I, yeah, I did my field work in Iceland. I was there for about a year and a half, all told. Yeah. Um, and that was in 2014, yeah. Okay. How did you come to this work? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think like most anthropologists, it's a super roundabout way. Mm -hmm. But when I went to grad school... I was I was really interested in studying information politics. So this was like 2010, 2011, when like mm -hmm. WikiLeaks and Anonymous were becoming a big thing. Okay. Um, and like as someone who was invested in political work in Oakland, I was really like baffled and excited by what this kind of thing could offer, this kind of like technologically mediated politics. And so I went to grad school to study this stuff and then because I'm an anthropologist, quickly realized that I would actually have to hang out with those people if that's what I was going to do. And right. I was like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I don't actually <laughs> want to hang out with WikiLeaks for two years, and they wouldn't let me anyway. Um, and so I started looking at kind of other ways to think about this problem. And Iceland at the time was um, was kind of coming onto the map for these issues because a lot of like weird crossovers with WikiLeaks, but also they were developing their own pirate party, which is a sort of political movement that's based around a lot of things, but specifically like internet politics, net neutrality, freedom of speech, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, so I went to Iceland, started talking to those people, and to some extent stayed with those questions, but then also got totally fascinated by the actual physical infrastructure that allows all of this stuff to take place. So like physical infrastructure. <laughs> structure like a warehouse where yeah. they house stuff like no i mean it looks very much like a warehouse but okay. yeah specifically looking at data centers and to a lesser extent fiber optic cables but these um you know really like physical things that form the background of like distributed computing cloud computing cloud services all of the things we take for granted around how our data can move and really live elsewhere and we uh -huh. can still have access to it all that is supported by physical networks right, right. and for different reasons those networks have been built up in different parts of the world and so Iceland at the time, um, it was a question of politics, it was a question of connectivity, but it was also because Iceland had super um, abundant and renewable electricity, 
Um, that was a big reason that they started developing there. So there's all these sort of interesting like political and cultural, but also like environmental yeah. ecological questions that get tied into where kind of how and where data moves. Is, Is it, it the fact that it's cold too? Yeah, that exactly. Factor? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how it's does um, that work? because they need because they need to um, well. <laughs> no, you're right, you're right. It's exactly that. because it, it, it produces heat like the storage oh, of, uh, of data, so they need to to Energy. refrigerate the the machines. The like fiber yeah. optic, optic cables. The the servers, the servers really, servers. yeah, because okay. they'll they'll overheat, and so usually you have to pay for uh, air conditioning to keep those cool. But in Iceland, as they like to say in their promo, you can just kind of open the windows, and the cool climate helps uh, offset yes. the cost. And so, yeah. is it hydroelectric? It's like, it's, it's like it's that because they've got a lot of water. They got a lot of rivers there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's mostly hydro and some geothermal. Yeah. Okay. And mm -hmm. why why Iceland though? Like, what is it? What, like, did, did they have something? They just decided, okay, we're gonna install all of this stuff here in this country, or was there like, yeah. did they kind of? have a history of this sort of stuff? Oh, that's like such a good question. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is kind of like the crux of my dissertation. And so there's, um, there's like immediate reasons why Iceland, like this cheap electricity, there had just been a financial crash, people were looking for a new kind of economic development. Yeah. There was like political impetus in different ways. Yeah. But really what didn't I'm... Didn't they, sorry to interrupt no, no, you, no. didn't they like kick out their prime minister yeah. around that time too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's related to yeah. any of your stuff, but... No, I mean, it's interesting. It's, like, tangentially related, but it's super okay. interesting. Yeah, so there were all these big protests after the 2008 financial crash. The prime minister at the time was forced to step down. They mm -hmm. had a re-election. Um, side note, none of that stuff has stuck. This is, like, my number one point about Iceland is that, like, everyone thinks they jailed the bankers and, like, mm -hmm. got rid of their prime minister, but, like, the same political party is still in power. Right. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, I make a point of, like, tamping down people's excitement about Iceland. But, um... <laughs> yeah, as, much as, kill, but... It, as much as I love it, as much as I love it. Yeah, so, no, so there were all these sort of like immediately pressing reasons why they developed data storage, but mm. what I'm trying to show is that actually it's part of this much longer history of Iceland kind of serving as an intermediary, mm. and specifically an inter infrastructural intermediary between more powerful places. Mm. So, um, you know, I think all the way back to like, uh, the 17th century when Iceland was kind of seen as a borderlands between Europe and its outside or between like civilization and barbarism mm -hmm. and I'm doing like air quotes for the podcast <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the Danish Empire would build infrastructures to kind of facilitate that role and then you can think you can look through the uh, Second World War when Iceland was again mm -hmm. used as a platform between the US and the Western Front in Europe all the way through the Cold War when Iceland was seen as this kind of intermediary between capitalism and communism or the East and the West and so so what I want to show is how data centers actually kind of partake in this logic and like reproduce mm. this position that Iceland's been in for a really long time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, like, they're an intermediary, and they're and they're just sort of like facilitating communication between people, or like, are they sort of like mediating between countries in like the role of a, a mediator? Like, how does that relationship work? Yeah, both, both. I mean, it's um. What I'm interested in is sort of how these sites of like technological connection actually become places where political connection comes up for debate. And so I look at these different historical examples, including data centers, but also like the first telegraph cable that was built through Iceland and an American uh, sonar surveillance system that was built in Iceland. And all of these instances when really it was about infrastructure. It was about mm -hmm. saying like, we're over here and you're over there and we're going to build these tracks or these channels or these roads through this place. Mm -hmm. You know, it was 
presented as a very kind of neutral technological solution. Obviously, of course, it became the site where people would talk about like, well, we're not so different from you, or actually, we're more like these people than these people, or we're going to try to sort of play both sides and make the, uh, make a Iceland profit off of this. Yeah, sort exactly. Of both sides of the exactly. Huh. Yeah. What, yeah. Kind, of, what kind of information are they trafficking? Yeah, that's a good question. Like I a mean, sonar surveillance system. Like, who are they surveilling? Oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> that's this, probably a huge question. I, no, I mean, this is bananas. This is like a. Um, a deep tangent of my work that I went down like way too eagerly, but yeah, during the Cold War, um, they, the U.S. built a sonar surveillance station in Iceland uh, off the coast, and it was part of this really global network of mapping, uh, basically trying to monitor Soviet movements. And so they would set up these microphones underwater, and then whenever a Soviet submarine was moving, they would be able to triangulate all of these different listening points to show like it's this kind of ship, and it's moving in this direction, and it's probably nuclear, or it's not or we need to follow it with a plane or we don't like it was bananas wow yeah <laughs> and what kind of information are they housing in these data centers now yeah i mean it's a good question because there's something there's a lot of stuff that we know and there's a lot of stuff that we don't just kind of right. by virtue of how this stuff works it's like black box or yeah whatever. totally it's like you you basically only can know what people are willing to tell you and mm -hmm. plenty of people aren't but um no there's a lot of there's a couple big corporations that have chosen to move operations to Iceland now, and so um, we know that like BMW is running some of their simulations there. There's some big hedge funds that that are storing data in Iceland. Mm. But a big thing that's happening there now is actually Bitcoin, which okay. is this oh, yeah. like online cryptocurrency yeah. um, that as folks like may or may not know is basically like mined with computational power and so um, Iceland is becoming a big site of data coin of Bitcoin mining it's mined with computational power yeah what does that mean <laughs> you know it's like when I talk about my work in this way that I realize how weird it is like no this isn't <laughs> well, <laughs> you shouldn't need to know that <laughs> well but also it's like I don't know a lot so no. I like to just don't no. ask but yeah what do you what does that mean mined by computation yeah so i should preface this that i'm not a bitcoin expert and you okay. kind of have to be to like <laughs> know, really get what blockchain is but um it's a basically it's a currency system that was set up to kind of like release money into the system in a way that would kind of mimic a natural resource economy okay. so as not to flood the system in a kind of artificial way. Mm -hmm. And so to get at the, the coins or the money, a computer has to basically solve a computational problem. Mm -hmm. And when Bitcoin was first released, those problems were easy enough that you could just have your own home computer do it and it would figure it out in a few hours. Mm -hmm. But as it kind of grew and got more expensive and more uh, whatever widespread, um, the problems get harder and harder. And so now you really need to have a designated server, a cluster of servers devoted to this problem of solving the algorithms to get at the Bitcoins. Enter Iceland yeah. and their data <laughs> mines. Exactly. Uh, okay. exactly. So there's whole like warehouses full of servers that are just devoted to Bitcoin. Like warehouses, mm -hmm. like, like a humongous... Where they store all the servers. Like I just am yeah. such a like no, exactly. Luddite that I have no idea. But like, but that's basically what it is, right? It's, it feels exactly like a warehouse. And this is sort of one of the weird points of connection between these earlier kind of regimes and data storage is mm -hmm. that actually a lot of them are being built in the site of the former American military base. And huh. so one data center where I spent a lot of time, it looks like a giant warehouse, and it's because it was previously a storage hangar for the American military in the Cold War. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Ooh, and so is there something about Iceland 
that makes it particularly attractive? Like, are there sort of like, are they lax about things legally in terms of like data store data storage or like they're like like I'm thinking like Cayman Islands and offshore hedge funds here is that kind of totally so that's a good that's a really good uh kind of counterpoint because I think that a lot of people would like to make Iceland that way Mm -hmm. and so there are a few things that make it appealing in terms of like cheap power contracts and they do uh whatever there's like tax breaks for computational industries but um what a lot of people have been trying to work towards is making Iceland a kind of haven for kind of dangerous or controversial or persecuted information and so it's exactly Mm -hmm. that just like a tax haven they would pass laws that would make it easier to keep your information in Iceland um easier to sort of you know as people say make it free and harder to have other folks uh, interfere with it. But that's still, that hasn't really happened. Like, that hasn't been the case yet. Um, But that's something that a certain group of activists are really invested in. Um, And that's, that's something I'm interested in, right? Because it's this weird way of, like torquing sovereignty in the interests of internationalism like mm. by passing these specific laws in Iceland somehow that information is going to be able to get out or have certain effects all over the world yeah. um, I think it's a really clever idea and it's not law yet do you think it will eventually make its way there I don't honestly but I would really like to be surprised yeah <laughs> yeah and so uh, there's people who are like like activists who are mobilizing to try and prevent from happening? You know, it's more like activists are trying to make it happen and the political establishment is not at all interested in making that happen. Right, So what was your field work like in Iceland? Were you doing an ethnography of these, like, the warehouses where stuff was being held? So that's what I thought I was going to do. That's kind of what I had proposed (laughs) as the research. Um, And then because data centers have are really intense around corporate security um, yeah. and also just really boring. Like, it turned out that that wasn't going to... I don't know. There's other people who do cool projects in data centers, but it, it just didn't feel like the site. Um, yeah. And so some of my research was inside of data centers, so I did spend time... Um, you know, taking tours and interviewing different like developers and engineers and security people um, inside of the data centers themselves. But much more of my research wound up being about the kind of social life around the data centers mm-hmm. and how the people who um, who had interact, who'd lived around these places, who were neighbors, who had seen these sites change, how they were thinking about that development and kind of relating it to what they'd experienced before. So how were they engaging with the data centers? Like, did it like, cause it's been, if it's, you know, this history goes mm. back as so far, it would seem to me that it's part of the culture mm. in Iceland. So, like, how do people deal with, like, you know, like, here's this warehouse with all of this top secret stuff going on in it. How do people relate to that? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I was doing my research in um, in a peninsula called Reykjanes, which is in the southwest, the far southwest of Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very, I should say, it's not... Um, it's not like prototypically Icelandic. Like there's sort of a, it's it occupies this weird middle zone where it's not the city like Reykjavik, which is like very kind of cosmopolitan and like mm-hmm. nightlifey and fun and you know where all the kind of activity happens. But it's also not like the countryside, which is sort of imagined as being very idyllic and pastoral and romanticized. Right. And it's kind of this uncomfortable in between, which is like part of why I love it so much, even though most Icelanders find it totally distasteful. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I. Was I was working there um, 
talking to people who were experiencing this transition between the, the military base and the data center construction. So I was really looking at that kind of nexus of change. Um, and yeah, what I saw was that people were using a lot of the same strategies that they'd been using their whole lives and relating to this new kind of development. Mm -hmm. And so an important point that I wanted to make was like as much as this um, as much as this new technology is kind of posited as being like novel and transformative and exciting and brand new, like actually for people who are very intimate with that infrastructure, it doesn't feel that way at all. And it actually kind of taps into these really old, uh, both like material and spatial and effective grooves. Like the way mm -hmm. that people sort of interacted with that space um, very much drew on their relationship with the military base, like in terms of knowing not to cross certain lines or knowing not to be present right. in certain spaces without having to be told. Um, and then also the kinds of like ideas that people had about what was happening inside yeah. were also learned from interacting with an American military base their whole lives, right? Like, what I saw was, like, cultivating a kind of, like, disposition of suspicion while also kind of knowing how to figure things out if you had to. <laughs> okay, but people yeah. were, like, kind of suspicious of what was going on. Yeah, totally, like, totally. I feel like I would, but, like... I mean, yeah. Do, yeah. <laughs> were people, like, do people sort of pass... Some people passively just accept that this is part of the landscape or as well? Like, I would think it would just become so routine in some ways, too. Like, oh, don't go over here. you got to, like, go around this way or... Yeah. Don't trespass on this thing or... Yeah, totally. I mean, people had really different... Uh, sort of senses of what was happening in there. Like, for some people, it was, like, a topic of conversation. Like, we really mm -hmm. need to know what's happening in our backyard, and we should figure out what's in there. Um, and for a lot of people, it was exactly that. It's just, like, there was a big box on the hill, and then now there's a different big box on the hill that's kind of doing the same thing right. as it used to. Um, but that, like these different kind of strategies for living with the presence of, of difference and living uh, kind of at the heart of technological connection mm -hmm. were, um, were again, like, very practiced and very handed down and very mm -hmm. different from, like, brand new interactions with brand new technologies. Right. Yeah. People were used to it and knew it. It was mm -hmm. familiar. Did, it, did you, as an American there, did that sort of, like, how did that um, affect... Um, how you interacted with people and people in the community. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's definitely something that we talked about a lot, and people had different, like, uh, kind of stances towards it. And yeah. so there were some, like, my favorite thing was a lot of, like, middle-aged men would always frame, when they would talk about stuff the Americans did during the Cold War, they would always say, you guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> you guys came over here, and, like, you guys built this thing, and <laughs> when you did this. Yeah. Um, and so it's definitely, like, a piece of the mm -hmm. research that yeah. um, my own position in relation to that history. Um, and then also there's something about, like, God, what am I trying to say? I, I think there it was always done ironically, and it was mm -hmm. always done with like a, um, a like yeah, like reflexive irony kind of. Where it was also, which I I see is also about saying like we're not the victims in this situation. Like you right. and I have been in this negotiation for a long time, and like sometimes you got ahead, and sometimes we got ahead, and like we're still doing that. Right. Um, yeah. Rather than seeing it as like a top down from the the U.S. Totally, yeah. Hmm. It's interesting because it's like you know that that's like the micro relationship of you as an ethnographer with people in the community is like kind of mirroring the 
the U.S., but except for like totally different because you were like being critical and looking at like, the the data storage facilities with a critical mind. So it's not quite yeah. on that same level, but it colors the relationship. I would absolutely, think. no, absolutely. That's something I thought about a lot, and it was. I think that um, something that I kind of had to realize in doing the research was I, because it's important to me to think about positionality and to be mm. reflexive, I think that I kind of came in to, with, I came in with my own analysis around like, this is an, Amer an instance of American empire and it's important to dismantle American empire, mm -hmm. which I believe, like I believe that base building and militarism is American empire. Yes. Um, and also that was not the analysis that these people who I was interacting with had. Right. Um, and so... Yeah, it was an it was an interesting kind of long process of sorting out what that meant for both of us. Yeah. Yeah. Did you come to any sort of like resolution of that tension or is it ongoing? <laughs> I think that's just always gonna be ongoing. Yeah. I think that's like what being a person is now. But yeah, um yeah, true. But I mean I did I did get a lot of practice and kind of like staying with the tr the intimacy of it. Yeah. I think like the um yeah, I mean, the interest for me in, ra in mapping these different relationships around these different forms of technological connection mm -hmm. is really getting to grapple with, like, what it means to be connected to other people who are far away mm -hmm. or what it means to be really tightly connected across really drastic differences of power or really drastically different kinds of stakes and aims. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think at the same time that my research was sort of saying, like, this is important, we need to pay attention to that, it was also something that I was getting to really practice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as a project potentially that was going to happen here in the ethnography lab. Yeah. But does this, how does this relate to your Icelandic work? I mean, we've talked a little bit about sort of the data, but I'd love to hear how secrecy and revelation is part of your work in Iceland. Sure. Yeah. I mean, man, I, so at the very start of my research on information politics, like secrecy and revelation was like the crux of it. That was like the thing I was so interested in. And then um, in coming to Iceland, I felt like that was something that was going to be really, I felt like that was going to be a really strong threat, right? Like working in these data centers, working in this old American military base, like secrecy had to be the thing, right? And that was yeah. what I was going to study. Um, and then as I spent time there, it just never worked out the way that I thought it would and um, wound up just never being as straightforward and never being as sexy as I wanted it to be, right, but right. like all the more interesting because of that. And so thinking about like, um, you know, I found all these examples of like the old, the former military base and the... Um, the sonar surveillance system that was built there. Yeah. This thing was supposed to be top secret. This was like the U.S.'s like tool to take down the East. And right. this was like not supposed to be spread around. But then when I went to live in this little town, everyone there was like, obviously we knew what that was. Like, right. We had to like steer our boats around the cable. Like we fixed the roof of the list secret listening station when it was leaking. Like my mm. brother poured the concrete to lay right, the thing. Right. Like everybody knew because it's a small town. And like, um, and so... 
I, uh, it, it never, like, secrecy was never the kind of sharp edge that I wanted it to be. It was right. never, like, the crux of the project, but it became this super interesting site where, like, weird social stuff would happen, and the way people interacted with secrecy, um, you know, things like indifference and things like choosing not to notice and mm -hmm. things like... Um, you know, knowing too much about your neighbor because you live in a small town, like all of that, like became a much richer site. And so that's mm -hmm. something I've been trying to do with secrecy ever since is sort of like getting past the the kind of like secrecy revelation, you know, dyad and thinking more about like what secrecy can do. Mm, cool. Yeah, because it is kind of like a sexy mm. topic a little bit. Like it's totally. like, ooh, uh, you know, like <laughs> what secrets and like, you know, like how does that? And so it's a lot more sort of like, everyday secrecy than like a big top secret yeah. sort, of, sort of thing. Totally. And also I've had to try um, sometimes more successfully than others to not frame. I thought a lot about framing or not framing my work is like revealing a secret. Yeah. So a lot of like looking into data centers, a lot of the kind of knowledge people have around them is like, those are really secretive. And because of that, they're really suspicious and we need to know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and that I think when I, came to the project was was sort of the way I imagined myself too yeah. and that's you know not what I did and it's not what I'm trying to do and it's not really what I think needs to be done there and so I've been trying to kind of you know play with that and like enrich those terms a little bit. Yeah. some of your articles around um, sexual assault in the field. This is like a radical shift from what we were just talking <laughs> about, but like, whatever, let's just go for it. Um, so, and I, I like, actually, talking about your writing, it makes sense because I loved all, like the pieces that I read, I read three Thank articles you. and like, you're an excellent writer. I really Thanks. enjoyed reading them. Um, but so, the first one that I read was The Violence and Vulnerability in Anthropology, mm -hmm. and um, you were talking about problematizing the idea of chosen vulnerability. Mm. Do you remember writing that? <laughs> like, I don't know <laughs> how long that. ago these That's were written, ago. but like, um, so maybe, um, like, yeah, I'm curious about what that, this chosen idea of chosen vulnerability in the field, maybe we could start there. Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, so something I was trying to think through in that article is the way that our relationship to vulnerability as anthropologists, I think, has, has changed a lot over time, but stays unsettled in a way that's kind of productive and troubling to me. Um, so, you know, if you think about the beginning of ethnographic research and what it looked like when Malinowski was doing it, it was like this intrepid male explorer who's going off to this dangerous place all by himself right. to do the work. And um, and that, that really changed in the 70s and 80s, specifically with the turnaround feminism and decolonization, where a lot of um, especially women writers, women writers of color were saying, like, that's not how to interact with people, yeah. actually, what we what is where we learn from our interactions with other people is and when we're coming at them from a kind of real and genuine and vulnerable and intimate place. Um, and that that was a sort of transformational uh, intervention, really, and one that I was kind of trained in as an anthropologist myself and one that I appreciate and kind of think with a lot. Um, and then I think that something has happened in the way that intervention is disseminated the, that kind of loses where that's coming from. So mm -hmm. I think that all of us know that like when you go to the field, you need to open yourself up and you need to be honest and you need to be vulnerable. Um, 
but I think that often gets framed as a choice mm -hmm. when what it was coming from was not a choice. Right. <laughs> um, and the point that I was trying to make in that article is that many of us still do not get to choose that vulnerability um, and that that's something anthropology doesn't really think much about. And so I was writing specifically around the, the context of sexual violence and having experienced sexual violence during research, that the problem of sexual violence, which is endemic, like a lot, a lot of researchers experience sexual assault in the field, um, that really kind of troubles this, this idea of chosen vulnerability. It all of a sudden complicates this picture that like, oh, I can just show up anywhere I want to, and if I choose to cultivate this disposition that's open and that's respectful and that's vulnerable, then that's going to be enough. Right. It really calls into question the ways that, the ways that we're very vulnerable and then also the ways that we're not, and it makes us think through those, and it, it gets uncomfortable. Yeah, because it also, I think, um, sort of th this idea of going to another place and if you, or the, if you experience assault or are assaulted in that place, that um, there's an expectation of um, intervention, like you say, mm -hmm. um, of, of, that's sort of like grounded in the place that you come from rather than the place that you're at that is problematic. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, the, the question that I was sort of posing in that article was like, why... Okay, anthropologists, for the most part, certainly not all of us, but for mm. the most part, we're on the same page. We're like, okay, sexual assault is bad. We want to take mm. care of yes. people who are sexually yes. assaulted. Uh, yes. Like, we should figure out how to do that, probably. Um, and yet, we we really haven't. And I don't think, I mean, part of it's like institutional funding and whatever, and part mm. of it um, is people actually not wanting to do that. But I was trying to say that a big part of it is it is just that we don't really know how to make those claims. And it makes sense that we don't know how, because if you think about what happens, when a student is assaulted in the field, it's like, what can you do about it? Okay, you mm. can tell them to stay and figure it out. You can tell them to come home immediately. You can send them to a therapist. You can send them to a police officer. And all of those things are making statements about the way the world should be in the place that they are. Mm -hmm. And those are things that like we're not comfortable doing and we shouldn't be comfortable doing. And right. so it's a it's sort of an impasse or a sticking point around confronting this issue that anthropologists really haven't talked about. Mm -hmm. And so what's been the response to this article and like and like speaking up about this stuff are people like willing to engage in these conversations with you have you yeah. felt like reception has been people have been open to this yeah yeah, yeah i really have That's i've good. had no i feel <laughs> super hearting. super lucky yeah it is right yeah yeah um no i've gotten a lot of really beautiful responses and had a lot of um yeah, I made a lot of really good connections. And so I've organized roundtables at last year's um, American Ethnological Society and the mm -hmm. AAAs last year in the U.S. Um, excuse me, this this coming next month at the AAAs, yeah. uh, we're doing another roundtable. And the yeah, the, the turnout and the reception has been really wonderful. Amazing. Yeah. So people are starting, slowly starting to have these conversations. Yeah. Where people, like um, you said that you experienced some of this yourself, was, it, was the response from the people you work with, like, was it productive for you, I guess, would be the way to frame that. Yeah, you mean the people I worked with in Iceland or in... Um, well, in Iceland, but also at your, your university. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, been, it's been interesting. It's been a good conversation, because I think this is one of those good sites to kind of put 
what we know as anthropologists and to practice as people, which is like hard for a lot mm-hmm. of people, you know, mm-hmm. sure. because we know all of these things about like how violence works and about how institutions fail, because that's what we look at as ethnographers. Yes. And yet when it comes to our own lives and our own students and our own colleagues, like often we forget those things. Yeah. Um, and so, no, I've been super lucky to have very supportive responses at my institution and with my own colleagues. And also I think it's been a learning edge of like, oh, this is <laughs> this is different than you know what the bureaucracy says it is. So yeah, yeah. And has has that sort of like shaped your work in Iceland too a little bit that that experience? Yeah, yeah. it's a good question. I think I'm still um, I'm not entirely sure all of the ways that it has, but I know mm. that it. One thing that it did right away for me was create this kind of intimacy that I didn't particularly ask for or want, Mm -hmm. but was invaluable. Um, And so, you know, when you experience violence, you depend on people in a way that you're not always ready for, but also depending on people, like, builds a relationship. And so I think that having that happen to me while I did research, like, gave me this experience of belonging that I might not have had otherwise Mm -hmm. that's like fraught and complicated but also that I'm grateful for Mm -hmm. um and then I think it it directed my attention and so stuff like secrecy and revelation like suspicion paranoia like oh my god there's nothing like a sexual assault trial that will focus your attention on suspicion and secrecy and revelation all these things and so um yeah no i know that it directed my attention in ways that i really appreciate too right because you 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 had to go through a trial yeah yeah. so Mm -hmm. it was like and was there there's like media attention and stuff there was yeah that's a very that was a very very bizarre moment (laughs) yeah and one of the interesting things in the article that you talked about too was like the sharpening of sort of the ethnography that you were doing in Iceland. Can you talk a little bit oh, about totally. that? Oh, totally. I love that part. Sure. The, the <laughs> yeah. I thought it was really fascinating. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was something I thought a lot about when I was doing research was um, so after experiencing violence there was like a potential that that would happen again basically because the person was still out and knew who I was and where I was Um, and so there was a period in Iceland where I was really scared for my own safety and really kind of had to be hyper aware of like where I was going and who I was with and was anybody following me and where where does this person tend to be Um, and it occurred to me at some point like deep in that kind of paranoia (laughs) that, (laughs) that this was like a really enhanced form of ethnography like what you're doing in kind of a immersive ethnographic fieldwork is like really trying to open yourself to Mm -hmm. like pay extra extra attention to the world Um, and so I realized that that was happening to me in a very weird and specific and like self-serving way but in a way that really like um, had some interesting resonances with what we're asked to do as ethnographers Hmm. yeah Um, and so okay I have another quote from um, this is from a different article that you wrote called The Self at Stake Hmm. Thinking Fieldwork and Sexual Violence and so you said if better engagement with sexual violence has not been made pressing as a feminist question i suggest it's an epistemological one too mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um so that article was where i was i was talking about the what i was just saying the yeah. way that um the sexual violence really like attuned me differently as yes. an ethnographer and i mean look thinking about like the number of people who experience violence or harassment or um 
assault or and you know like this is a this is such a common problem that mm. I think it's a very like relatable mode um, and it's also not something that people are really encouraged to talk about like I think that we love to talk about the conditions of our knowledge production as long as we're choosing them or mm. as long as they're like happy accidents yep. but we don't like to talk about the ways that like I was really scared for my safety all the time yeah. or like I really ha hated this person and I still had to be around them yeah. and that shaped the kind of knowledge that I made right. um, and so what I was yeah what I was hoping to do in that article was just kind of call for like attention to and like validation to those modes of knowledge production okay. and that's kind of like a snarky barb or whatever but it's like yeah. look if we haven't dealt with this yet just because people are suffering and we need to help them then yeah. can we at least deal with this as like as researchers and yeah. people need to question our knowledge production okay exactly. and just dropped for exactly. a beat. that's cool. amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. great Thank you, Alex, so much for sharing your story with us. We really appreciate you having this public discussion about a difficult topic and for letting us be a part of the conversation. And for our listeners, if you're a student here at Concordia University and you need support, the Sexual Assault Resource Center, SARC, holds a drop-in Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. in room H645 in the Henry F. Hall building, or you can call them at 514-848-2424, extension 3461, or email them at sarc at concordia.ca.
welcome back. That beautiful track is called Across Centaurus A2, and it's by this week's musical guest, Concordia Masters student Shannon Floyd. Now, Shannon is an emerging synth artist and has yet to release her music on a public platform, so we are getting an exclusive listen this week. So thanks, Shannon, and stay tuned for more music being revealed in the near future from her. Very mysterious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Up next, we are welcoming back Luchin Ivanov to the podcast, who was a guest last season and spoke to us about the discourse analysis he was conducting on the secret files of the Romanian Securitata. Well, he's back, and we caught up with him to find out how his research turned out. since then yes okay so well that that paper is finished the thesis is finished Yay. thank you very much Woo. yes thank you <laughs> <laughs> so i graduated this uh, this may amazing um yeah thanks. i think you're the only person from our cohort so far to have graduated from the program so pat on the back for that thank you thank you thank you yeah well <laughs> I, I i wanted to to have that happening this year so yeah <laughs> it happened with a lot of effort. Yeah, um, yeah, no doubt. But you know, may, maybe as well because maybe you guys. I mean, I, I, you know, I work with these primary files. I didn't have no interviews to do. No, you know, so right. Maybe <clears throat> most of you guys, you have some. Uh, yeah, you know. Uh, other type of research involved, like you know, video material, audio material, uh, yeah, uh, research on the ground and stuff like that. So, but yeah. still, it's not yeah. a small thing to go through all of that data and do discourse analysis. Like that's still a pretty big. It was no, job. It, for sure, for sure, it was. It, it mm. took uh, it took some time, but um, I'm glad it's done. But and you did it. You're out the other side. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can tell you how it is on the other side. Yes. Did you go to convocation? <laughs> Sorry? Did you go to convocation? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah, yeah yes, you yes. wore your, your gown and cap? Everything is there on tape. Uh, yeah. It's all there on tape. Yeah, actually, Concordia uh, films everything, and you'll oh, find it on the surveiling website. Surveiling you right to the bitter end, Concordia. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's a... It's a nice type of surveillance this yeah. time, if I can say so, yeah. Absolutely, <coughs> yeah. absolutely. So, and how do you feel about the finished product? Oh, yeah. Have oh, I water. feel great. Uh, give me one. <laughs> yeah, take a drink. It's dry in here. We're in the ethnography yeah. lab, and first it's edit. a little dry. Yep. <laughs> first yep. edit. The first edit of yeah. the season. <laughs> Yay! No, we're leaving it all in, warts and all. They're, they're, we don't yep. edit this show. What are you talking oh, about? Edits. <laughs> I was thinking of a different show. <laughs> 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 so how do you yep. feel about it? Like so now? I feel great, man. I feel yeah. great. Uh, I'm looking to um, publish uh, okay. some of the material, if not all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to my knowledge and my supervisor's knowledge, I mean, um, I've done the first translations of uh, this type of archives mm-hmm. of, of the secret police from Romanian from to English. Romanian, yeah, from Romanian to you English. You translated? Yeah, I translated five. How five much texts. did you translate? Well, uh, there were five texts. The longest was maybe nine pages. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I didn't translate it completely, that nine-page text. I have actually, like, three texts translated. That's but still, really awesome. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that's a lot that's, of work. Yeah, it is, yeah. Like maybe I you guess. didn't do an interview, but you translated <laughs> yeah, some stuff. Translate, that's pretty yeah. cool. So, 
that in all, it's it's interesting to see to see the you know the oath that uh, a secret agent would uh, would say, right? I mean, it's um. you know it's like you 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 reading up an FBI oath. Who wouldn't love to, to see that? Who are they you know, pledging their allegiance to, to? Well, to the country, to yeah. the Securitate, obviously. You know. Is there anything you know, in that oath that really stood out to you? Um, well. Yeah, what, what stood out like, uh, and was in line with my research, and that's why I chose it, was that, um, and I guess that's in any kind of oaths, right, uh, secret oaths of this nature, of, of, of agents, that are sworn in to protect the country, right, from yeah. internal and external enemies and, and so on. Right. So, uh, yeah, what particularly interested me was that, you know, the the world enemy was there and the world mm -hmm. enemy of the people was uh -huh. there and and everything else because all my research goes around um, how the enemy of the people concept was created to serve political purposes right so, yes so that is actually exactly in the oath as well so okay enshrined uh, in enshrined. the oath yes so i mean there's a there was a culture obviously a culture of the yeah. Securitate. <laughs> and of <Agents>. like <laughs> sort of distrust and suspicion of the other, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, so yeah. let's go back and like, so when you came here the last time, we were talking about your research. And so we, your research is about the secret police and these documents and discourse analysis. And you were talking about your framework. You were using a Foucauldian framework. You were talking about the, um, the panopticon, yes. the, the prison through which um, citizens are incited to surveil themselves um, but you were like, I feel a little bit like, like this isn't really set in stone yet. So now yeah, you finished yeah. your thesis. Walk yes. me through yes. okay, any clarifications so you want to make. Exactly. I would walk you through those. So um, I was using Carol's Bucky um, methodology. Mm -hmm. uh, and she asked a very important question, which is, um, what is the problem represented to be? Mm -hmm. uh, her take is that we are governed by problematizations mm -hmm. and if we buy into those prob type of problematizations uh, well then we buy in the whole thing so we, we accept to be governed that way on okay. that uh, you know on that path right so this whole thing with the uh, I mean uh, I mean the, this discourse analysis and this discourse of, of in the Securitate files um, uh, you know portray uh, the problem um, you know, put the problem uh, on the individual that do not understand and uh, conform to the measures, to the newly measures instaurated by the Communist right. Party and whatnot. So we're problematizing so, people who disagree with us. Exactly. And then people buy into that and they yeah. agree to be governed because they're not that problematic citizens. Exactly. So by, good by citizens. Exactly. So they so, have nothing to worry about. There you go. So by <laughs> stating who can potentially be an enemy of the state, or mm -hmm. equalizing that with uh, the enemy of the people, actually, mm -hmm. uh, statement. Uh, obviously, there's an unspoken antithesis there that, uh, while you'd like to be a friend of the people, right? Like yes. If, you know, we do not want you to be an enemy of the people, so it's better to be a, a friend of the people right. if you want to... Be good. You know, be good, exactly. <laughs> be good so, children. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's... Uh, that was an interesting thing that that uh, came out, mm -hmm. um, and you know this enemy uh, element, uh, uh, as you mentioned, was pro uh, problematized as the other, 
in many forms, right? Um, in the form of uh, of other ethnicities in Romania that all of a sudden okay. are denied their ethnical status. Right. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. are Romanians. That's it. Who okay, are you, the problem you, people? Yeah. Like it can't just be political dissenters, but there must be like all of the undesirables yeah. in yeah. Yeah. the country. So. Uh, you know, so, so ethnic, ethni ethni groups. Yeah, ethnic groups. Then you have the class enemy, right? Mm -hmm. The boyars, the ancient class of, uh, you know, latifundiaries. The, you know, the Tell me about of this. Land. I don't know anything about this. Well, so, <clears throat> you know, Romania was coming out of the coup d'état uh -huh. on the instauration of communism yep. was made against uh, the the ancient regime, which was a monarchy, right? Mm -hmm. So. In a monarchy, obviously, I mean, you know, uh, people had had land from the king, and you know, right. you know, for hundreds of years were not disturbed by that, right? Right. So they have their oh, land ownership and possessions and everything else, right? So. And this was what the communist well, revolution overthrew. Exactly. All of a sudden, you have to give that up to the state, you know, collectivization uh -huh. and everything else. So. So all you know, the rich ones exactly become the, the become class enemy. The right? problem yeah. problematized. So all of a sudden <laughs> you have a yeah, you know, uh, a fair amount of people that yeah. <laughs> are, are you know are in that category. Yeah. Um, uh, land owning wise, the rule was who had more than 15 hectares, and mm -hmm. that's in, in in European measurements. Um, I think I. I calculated it was around 25 acres, okay. I think. So if you own 25 so acres. So if, or, or more, you deem to be a kulak, which is a Russian term. Okay. Uh, which means uh, like you're a boyar, uh, you're a... Okay, right. A somewhat rich uh, right. owner of land. land and you owner. would need help to manage that land. Uh -huh. Therefore... Help from uh, who? You know, the state will provide you the help uh -huh. and will take you <laughs> under his wings. Okay. Right, right. Okay. Uh, so benevolent. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that was another class, um, another category. Then the historical party members, um, right? The Democratic Party, the Liberal yeah, Party, yeah. and whatnot. Okay. Because I mean, in the end, you had just the, you know, it, it became a a one-party <laughs> society, which yeah. was the laborers, the, the laborers' party, right. the workers' party. Yes. Um, and then it became the, the communist party. Yeah. So, and then... Um, what about... And, and, but it must have just been like, you know, like anybody who sort of was de deemed deviant exactly. in society was yes. up for surveillance. Exactly. And yeah. So that brings me, that's a good point, brings me to my uh, my other, uh, you know, um, my, my other point that I discovered here was that, um, well, through Verderi, to, through Verderi's, um, uh, you know, literature review and, and others, uh, it was a self-generating system. So, <clears throat> you know, this surveillance system. Uh, this is what were, you talked about last time, yeah, right? Yeah, that's what we talked about last time. Yeah, so with the panopticon. you were exactly you were strange enough to be on the list. Mm -hmm. mm, surveillance was triggered without your, you know, consent and knowledge, mm -hmm. and uh, you know it depends. Maybe you'll stay on the list if they'll discover something, mm -hmm. uh, or you know they'll they'll cross you off the list, well, but after a couple of months or a year of surveillance mm -hmm. of you and your family. Do and people whatnot. really get crossed so, off that list? Uh, 
I guess some people do, yeah. Okay. But as I said, it generated, uh, you know, it generated work right. for the, and, and it, it has the enhanced the the power of the. I mean, it sounds a lot like in the 1950s with the McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy trials and uh, the hunt for communists in the states, right? Like mm-hmm. it was, it became a lot of. Um, I, th- I, th- I think with what l- I'm no expert, but like that was a lot of collecting undesirables, gay people, uh, mm-hmm. Jewish people, and branding them as communists, as enemies of the state. Like yeah. similar principles, I yeah, think, I and think where so, people yeah. were yeah. turning in other people mm. to the government. Seems like there may be some parallels there. Too. Yeah, they could be. But bear in mind, this—I uh, mean, this was uh, as well used to enhance and to reinforce the um, the number of, of workers for for the state security. Mm. So that that uh, you know was as, as I said, generated more equipment, more funds, more anything, right? Because mm. look, we have this huge amount of people we need to keep in check. We need right? to keep so, right. Uh, so, and that leads me to the third point, which yes. is a major finding here uh, and that is that actually this type of surveillance um, functioned like a super panopticon and that's that's Mark Poster's uh, terminology, a super panopticon uh-huh. uh, that he uh, introduced uh, you know as the digital came, digital era was, was, was coming up okay. in the 80s so uh, so what's the super panopticon? Well the super panopticon is this, um, well, it's the panopticon on steroids, right? Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's a super panopticon. Exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it applies to, you know, the, the, the digital era in the sense that we all know how Facebook works by now, right? Yes. And, uh, and all of this. And, um, you know, all the institutions, the, you know, the IRS and, and whatnot, right? So you file something, there's a paper trail and everything else. Well, with Facebook, there's a digital trail. You know, everybody can right. see things about everybody. Uh, moreover, data is gathered that is, is mm-hmm. sold on your, <laughs> without your knowledge, right? And, you know, well... I guess we do know that we just agree with just the free sub- subscription, right, yeah. against that data, but which yes. is an infinitesimal price to pay. Uh-huh. I, I, get, I, I would Do you say, think so? I mean, I don't think Small so. Small price but, to pay? But people think so, right? People so, do think so, <clears throat> yeah. It's normal. So that's, yeah. So that's pretty much a super panopticon. It's, uh, you know, info generation and information generation and... And, so, uh, the, you, you, so your your argument was that this um, the regime in Romania at the time was also a super panopticon. Yes, Un, but yes. like it okay. functioned it's as a super panopticon mm-hmm. in a pre-digital era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something that Poster and even Foucault, of course, um, I mean, didn't what made mention it super and not regular panopticon. Well, what, uh, I'll tell you what made it super. It's the fact that. Um, you know, uh, agents were were using um, informers as, as nodes of information. So, uh, you know, uh, they actually, their goal was to um, colonize all your connections, mm-hmm. right? So, all your contacts, mm-hmm. right? So, to be in between you and your contacts and, and so forth. So, you know. They require uh, information on your relatives. Then they'll go to your relatives, require information on 
their network, and right. it was again, it, it, it had this tendency to to be unstoppable, you know. So, mm-hmm. so they just created and, huge networks yeah, of informals. of information yeah. around particular people who had been deemed yes, yes. enemies, enemies exactly of the so, state. Yeah, pretty much so. I, again, I mentioned before, not everybody was snitching on everybody. Uh, I mean, in the real, uh, I mean, in all veridicity, like, mm-hmm. should I say, if they were informing, they were not always informing the truth. Well, uh, that's what I want to say. Because some people were protecting their relatives and whatnot just to have enough time to flee the country, for example. Mm-hmm. Or they just were stalling them for years without relevant information. Right. You know, because, yeah. So, actually, yeah, it was a game of cat and mouse, right? So right. So, there yeah. was resistance, resistance obviously. Yeah, in, yeah, in a sort of a... Was yeah, that part of your resistance. thesis? Was looking at some of the, like, modes uh, of resistance? Uh, yes, I touched a bit on it. Mm-hmm. Yes, because there were, and, and there were some, I mean... Up until uh, 65, 1965, so mm-hmm. this this communist period sta- uh, started in uh, 48. So I looked uh, in the first, uh, I looked on the first period, which is 48 to 69, mm-hmm. and then there's the second period with Ceausescu in power, the 70s to uh, 89. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, <clears throat> uh, up until um, 69. So up until 65. Uh, 1965, uh, there was resistance, and it was uh, class, you know, uh, mentioned in in these secret files. Yep. Um, there were groups, there were really groups that were hiding in the mountains. They were hitting back, and things like that. So, um, till they they finally managed to to break that and you know kill or uh, you know put in jail wow. <laughs> or arrested, you know, all those people. So. And then in the second yeah. period, like, that just was in not... In the second period, it was... Uh, because, you see, the, the second period was affected by, and benefically affected, I would say, by um, the technology. Yeah. So, uh, you know, surveillance became... Uh, it's not that it, it slowed down, but yeah. the, the, tactics, the tactics became... Um, more humane, if I can say, quote unquote, okay. <laughs> because uh, with the invention of you know s- you know little microphones and uh, you know miniature you know recording devices and yeah. enhanced binoculars and other things and video cameras, uh, there was no need for contact and arrest and right. Know? We don't have to beat it out of you because yeah. we can put a microphone on you the, and um, exactly. just listen. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> a softer, gentler form of surveillance. Form of surveillance. Exactly. So <laughs> they. Toned it down in a sense, and uh, actually, you know. Uh, and then, did the resistance in that period kind of go more underground, also, because there were more sophisticated ways of organizing? Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. I could tell you that there was a riot in the eighty, in eighty two, maybe, like mm-hmm. um, of workers. Um, that's as much as, as I remember, but mm-hmm. I didn't focus too much on the other period. Right. I focused on this period, which really it's. Is the you know the um, it's where where the Securitate settled in in power right, and where they established, established itself yeah, and, yeah. you know and I, I mean I'm not saying it's normal but I guess you know uh, uh, tougher tactics had to be employed obviously because there was a lot of resistance and that's yes. where this maniacal idea of everybody's our enemy came from right right 
yeah, they knew what they are doing. They knew yes. they were doing something against the will of the people, although they were portraying, uh, portraying it that oh no, it's for the Benevolent. people of the country and yeah. Whatnot. So yeah, so so future directions. Where are you going with this? You're gonna get a, try to get it published. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm working on on you know. Um, Trimming it down, yeah, to, for, for publication. Mm-hmm. Um, How long is it? Well, it's 83 pages bibliography included. So, okay. yeah, it's five documents. It's uh, it's pretty analytical. Yeah. So, uh, so you need to be yeah. more concise. Yes. That laser precision in terms yes, of what yes. you want to say. Most likely, yeah, I will probably choose uh, the most relevant um, um, article from that, uh, you know, uh, document. Yeah. Are you working with Martin? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so my supervisor Still working was... Still uh, Martin, yeah, supervisor. Yeah. Martin French, yeah. So maybe I'll focus on on, on one document and um, present everything else around that. Yeah, great. people all has been revealed for this episode thanks so much for joining us on this revelatory journey and huge thanks to this week's guests alex johnson luchin ivanov and the musical soundscapes of shannon floyd we'll be posting links to alex's articles on our facebook page so if you'd like to read the articles we spoke about in this episode please head on over to the best concordia facebook page this week's episode was produced by Pauline Hobanks, Juan Pablo Neri, Adam Van Sertema, Chris Millet, and Anne-Marie Turcotte. And it's no secret, we've got mad love for the Concordia Ethnography Lab, the Milia Institute, and the Speculative Life Research Cluster. Join us next week as we reveal more secrets from the Ivory Tower. And until then, best Concordia. Scoop. You weren't expecting that, were you? You thought I was going to stay on script. Ah!